seated. That was terrific. Thank you, guys. So, this morning, we're going to be uh, we're going to be in Colossians chapter two. So please turn there, and I'll be there in a minute. But I'm gonna. I need. Uh, let's see. I need. Hey, uh, Al, since you're still here, so you're gonna help. You like how that works? So, <laughs> you ain't running to the bathroom yet. Okay. And then. Uh, <laughs> so. And then Maggie, is that Maggie? I can't see without my glasses. Can you come help? See, I'm, you guys could all not even be here and I wouldn't even notice because I don't have my glasses on. It's great. So Maggie, come on, hold this. Okay. So this, perfect, perfect. Okay. So this morning, <laughs> this morning, this is just a word picture of uh, what I believe God wants to do in your life and mine, you know? Uh, you go to visit some place. Let's say we're, um, you know, visiting a museum right? And the museum has all these ropes and, you know, they, it's the, for crowd control, right? In fact, the word Christian is only used maybe at least one time, only one time that I know of, perhaps two or three times, at the most in the whole Bible. The word that is used over 164 times in the New Testament, so obviously it's very prevalent, to describe what a person is or what a person looks like who follows Jesus Christ as their Savior, that word is the word in, I-N, simple little word, in Christ, 
in him, in faith, used over 160 times in the New Testament. What does it mean? So we're really familiar with the concept of asking Jesus into my heart. I would ask you, so you, I bet if you went to our grow zone out there today and you asked any one of those kids, where does Jesus live? They would probably say, he lives in my heart, right? He lives in. Is it safe to say that I live in Jesus' heart? Like if I asked Jesus into my heart, does Jesus ask me into his heart? I kind of think he does. I mean, it's not a phrase that we use very often, but just think through that. We're in, you know? To say that I'm in Christ would imply that I have an in with Christ, that I have an in, that Jesus has raised a rope, and he says, hey, why don't you come on? You're not a visitor anymore. You're not a guest anymore. Let's raise this rope. I want you to come on in, and I want to show you a few things. I've got some stuff for you, right? If I'm at the, if, uh, I'm at the White House and I'm visiting the White House, again, I'm stuck behind the ropes and I got to go where the park ranger takes me and I dare not touch anything because I would hate to be responsible for breaking a national treasure. That would not be a good thing. But that's a very different experience than if I lived in the White House. True? Now I have access to the whole place. You and I are in Christ. You're not out. You're in we have this intense need as human beings to be in, don't we? It's like every organization and every group kind of has its in crowd. Every school has the in crowd. Maybe it's the athletes or the rich kids or whatever. And everybody, there's the in crowd and everybody's trying to get into the in crowd. Or every church has its in crowd. Every Boy Scout troop has its in crowd. Every football team, every sports team has an in crowd. There's always somebody who's in and everybody else wants to be in. Every business has its in crowd. Maybe where you work, you know, it's the top 5% of the salespeople or it's the, it's the upper level managers or it's these guys that are making so much. There's whatever defines the in crowd. It's kind of interesting because it gets defined different ways depending on where you are, but there's always an in-crowd, and the rest of us are trying to get into the in-crowd. And the funny thing that I find is everybody is trying to be on the in-crowd, even those that are in the in-crowd. If you stop and look at an evaluate, it's fascinating. Nobody feels like they're in, even those that are in. It's a riot. So maybe we ought to stop this whole business. Um, but I, what I love about Jesus is this. Jesus goes, you're in. I want you to be in. And Jesus has done amazing work in order to bring you and me in. And we're going to look at that this morning in Colossians chapter 2. So go with me to Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to start with verse 6. The Apostle Paul, now those of you that are new today, we've been working through this letter today, Paul's letter to the Colossian Christians. And uh, here we are in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. It says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. In him. See that? Rooted and built up. See that? In him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends 
on human tradition and the elemental, elemental principles of this world rather than on Christ. So stop right there for a second. First, in verse 6, Paul says that you have received Jesus Christ as Lord. Look, at Jesus is Lord. Jesus always has been Lord. And Jesus always will be Lord. Whether or not you acknowledge it, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't change the fact. However, it does benefit you now if you acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. But your acknowledgement, your reception of him as Lord doesn't change the fact that he's Lord. It's not like Jesus is up there really worried that, you know, you recognize his lordship. Because he's God and he knows it and he doesn't apologize for it. So Jesus is always Lord. But have you received Jesus Christ as Lord? We have this really uh, bad theology that has kind of crept into the modern church that separates this and says it's possible for Jesus to be your Savior but not your Lord. Listen, if Jesus is not Lord of all in your life, he's not Lord at all. Jesus is not interested in playing games. He's not interested in you dabbling with him. He really isn't. You're either all in or you're not. There's no riding the fence. And so we have this notion like I can somehow pray a prayer and now Jesus is my savior. So now I've got my fire insurance. But now somewhere along the line later on, now I'm going to actually start to obey Jesus. No, it doesn't work that way. To have Jesus Christ as your savior means it costs you nothing because Jesus paid it on the cross. He died for you to be your savior. To have Jesus Christ as your Lord costs you everything because Jesus demands obedience. In fact, Jesus asked some men one day in the Bible, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I said? It's kind of an oxymoron. It doesn't add up that you would sing the words, he's Lord, you're my Lord, you're my Lord, and then not obey him. See, my obedience, friend, indicates whether or not Jesus is Lord. Either Jesus is smart and he knows what he's talking about and he's in charge and I'm listening to him and I'm taking my cues from him or not. But don't mouth the words he's Lord and then walk in disobedience. Tracking with that? So then Paul goes to the Colossians. The Colossians had already reckoned with that. Notice that in verse 6. You've received Jesus Christ as Lord. Well, that's good news for you. So just as the Colossians, just as you have, now he says... You've got to get rooted, you look at the verbs, rooted and built up. Two verbs there. Rooted is a one-time action. It's, it's a once-and-done kind of verb. You take the tree, you plant it. That's a one-time action. But to be built up, that's ongoing. So now there's growing that has to take place. And then he says, strengthened in the faith. You've got to get strengthened in it. Friends, that means that you and I have some work to do. I go to the gym to strengthen myself. It implies that I have to increase the weights constantly in order to increase the strength constantly. Friends, you can't ride on the stuff that God did in your life 10 years ago. It's one of the saddest things in the world as a Christian who the only stories they have of their encounters with God took place 20 years ago in college. Like, are you kidding me? Jesus wants to be at work in your life right today. Every day there's a testimony. Every day there's something he's doing. I want to know what challenge are you taking on? 
How's your faith growing? Where's your next level? So now you're benching, you know, you're benching 90. What's it going to take to make you bench 100? Right? Where's the next challenge in your faith? Where's Jesus taking you? Because I guarantee you he is. Strengthened in the faith, right? And then he says, overflowing with thankfulness. That's one of Paul's favorite phrases. He uses it a bunch of times in his writings. It's the picture of a, of a bank, of a river, and it overflows its banks and it floods. And Paul says, your heart and my heart is like that. It's, we, we're so full of thankfulness that it just overflows, it spills. And so a thankless Christian is an oxymoron. It's impossible to really be walking in God's presence and enjoying an intimate relationship with Jesus and not be thankful. You know, like we talked about last week, too, Christ in you, the hope of glory. A hopeless Christian is an oxymoron. It's impossible. It's a Christian that doesn't recognize what they've got. You're, you're, you carry hope. You carry gratitude. It's a part of your nature in Christ. And then he goes, the next verse, see to it then. You like that? It's a challenge to you. See to it. You see to it. You see to it that no one deceives you and takes you captive with hollow and deceptive philosophy, he says, that depends more on, on human traditions and the elemental spiritual principles of this world rather than on Christ. He goes, you see to it that you don't get, to, that you don't get deceived. So it's my responsibility to not be deceived? Yeah. Well, how do I keep myself from being deceived? Well, you, what we just talked about. Rooted, built up, strengthened, overflowing with thankfulness, eyes on Jesus, eyes on Jesus. Now I got, now I, I become so familiar with the real deal that I can smell a fake, right? That's what he says, and that's your responsibility. So the only person that I can blame if I get deceived is me. I'm the one who allowed it to happen. That means, friends, like I said, you got some work to do. You know, that's why, uh, that's why we wrote this. I don't know if you have your copy yet. There's more on the table. And this is only just a beginning. This is not even meant to be, this is not even complete. This isn't even close. This is just our daily crumb, you know. It's not really even bread fully. It's just kind of, it's a little bit. But the hope would be that you'd begin some kind of pattern, some kind of habit in your life where every day you're digging into his word, you're taking this seriously, you're going to the gym, as it were, spiritually. Every day you're digging in, right? That's the point of it. So then he goes, you are in. You're in Christ. You're in him, in the faith. What did Jesus do to bring you in? I love this next part. Look at uh, verse 9. We'll start there. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Friends, I could just preach on that one right there. <laughs> could I just read that again? Because that is just one of the coolest statements in the whole Bible. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Do you believe that? Do you understand you're lacking no good thing? You get the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter said this: that you've been given everything you need for life and godliness. It's been given to you. You, you haven't been gypped. You don't get. 
you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't dole himself out in fractions. You don't just get a part of him and then prove yourself, and then you get another part, and, and then another part. You've been given fullness in Christ. Well, why? Well, because in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. So Jesus is completely God, and he's completely man. He's fully deity, and he's fully body. He's got both, 100% both. And all the fullness of deity lives in Christ. And where does Christ live? In you. So therefore, that's Paul's rationale. Therefore, I have been given fullness in Christ. Wow, that's good stuff. That's worth your tithe right there, really. Just take that one and go home. You got the ticket. He is the head, but I'm not letting you go yet because there's more. He's the head over every power and authority. In him, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. You were circumcised by Jesus having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. Notice, buried with him, raised with him. you got to follow these words. This is important. In which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. So look, I was in something before Christ. I was dead in sin. And I was in uncircumcision. I was stuck back in the line, right? That's where I was. That's dead over there. I was, but then he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, by the cross. Wow. Four things that Jesus does in order to bring you in. What, what does Jesus do in order to make you in? The first thing is this. What authority does Jesus have to even make it happen? Well, verse 9, he's God. So therefore, he has authority to make it happen. It's, let's take my White House analogy again. Let's say I'm on the tour of the White House. And I'm, you know, being a good citizen, and I'm not touching any of the invaluable, priceless vases, and I'm following a park ranger. And we turn the corner, and the president happens to be there. And for some unknown reason, he knows my name. And he says, hey, Doug, hey, I didn't know you were on this tour. Why don't you, here, you come over here. And he raises the rope, and now I'm walking with the president on a personal tour of the White House. Quite a different experience, wouldn't you think? right so how am i able to go anywhere the president goes in the white house well he has the authority to make it happen it's not like some low-level intern raises the bar and says why don't you come take a tour that means nothing but the president says come take a tour he's got the authority to do it jesus raises the rope and says hey Come on in. And by what authority does Jesus do that? Well, he's God. So therefore, he can invite you in. That's the first one. Then what else does Jesus do? Look at the second thing he does. This is a little awkward. But the Bible talks about it a lot. So we have to just discuss it. But it says that Jesus circumcises your heart. Now, it is awkward for our modern ears to talk about this surgical procedure. 
But apparently, in the ancient world, it wasn't awkward at all because they talked about it a lot. In fact, the Apostle Paul took Timothy as an adult and circumcised him. I'm thinking there's no way I'd do that to any of you guys. You know, hey, welcome to New River. I got a knife here for you. <laughs> I mean, like, really? But Paul did. So obviously, you know, they didn't have the same social awkwardness with this thing that you and I do. But it's an awesome word picture of what Jesus does. Look at it in the same way that surgically or religiously the rabbi would cut away the foreskin and throw it away. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ comes into your heart and he circumcises. He cuts away your sin problem. Literally cuts it away and removes it from you. You say, wow, thank you, Jesus. Follow this analogy one step further. So what's happening every time you engage back in your sin nature? You're playing with an old dirty foreskin. You go, that's gross. Yep. It is. Your sin is gross. You need to see it as gross. It is, there's nothing pleasant about it. You've got to take off the sugar coating and see it for what it is. Obviously, Satan doesn't sell it to you that way, clearly. Otherwise, it wouldn't be tempting. But you've got to see it for what it is. It is ugly. And the truth is, you as a follower of Jesus Christ, you as being in you, your sin problem has been cut away and removed from you. You say, well, then how come I still sin? That's a good question. It comes back to what we dealt with last week. I live out of my brokenness or I live out of my wholeness. You know, the, the beauty is you have a choice. Prior to Jesus coming into your life, you had no choice. You were just caught up, like we said, like it says in Colossians, we read it, you were dead in your sin. That's where you were. Now you have a choice. I either live in that old nature or I live in my new nature. Which one will you choose? And now with this word picture, my old nature looks even worse. Why would I want to live in that? That is just disgusting. So the first thing that Jesus is, is he has the authority to let you in. The second thing Jesus does is he comes into your heart and he performs this surgery in your soul, as it were, and he cuts away your sin problem. And Paul uses the word picture of baptism. You see that next in the text? Just because I don't have my Bible open, my hands are busy. But you got your Bible open, I hope. But you see it next in the text, baptism. You know what? In the first century, there was, there was not a single Christian in the first century church who didn't get baptized. For them, baptism wasn't an issue. Nowadays, we've come to the place where people get saved, and then, you know, 20 years later, they're still thinking about getting baptized. That didn't happen in the first century. And for them, baptism was a very clear picture. I go under the water, implying that my old life is dead, buried with Christ, it says. I come out of the water, a picture of being raised to Christ, new life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, all things are passed away. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have come new. The word there, new creation, literally means a whole new species of being. 
Doug Rouse doesn't even exist any longer in his old form. It's, it's over. What, what lives here is a completely new species of being filled with Jesus Christ, marked by his character. It's awesome. So Jesus has cut away that sin problem. It's not an issue in your life, and it doesn't need to be an issue any longer in your life. Third thing Jesus does is Jesus cancels your debt. You see that next in the next verse there? I think it's verse 14. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Jesus cancels your debt. Every one of us comes into our relationship with Jesus in debt. We got a lot of debt hanging over our heads. And the debt is my sin. The truth is I've broken the law. I mean, God does have a law, and I've violated it. It was a very uh, humbling and sobering reality for me a few years ago when it hit me that I have broken every one of the Ten Commandments. I used to think of myself as a really nice, righteous guy. And now, in light of the fact that I have violated every one of the Ten Commandments, yeah, it doesn't look so pretty anymore. And the truth is, you probably have also violated all ten of the commandments. If you're not sure how, talk to me later and I can explain it to you. You have. And the truth is, you and I bring this debt, this huge debt, into our relationship with Jesus. But the beauty of Jesus is this. Jesus has a huge supply. The immensity of Christ's supply simply absorbs my debt. It's kind of like this. You know, I do pre-marriage counseling because, you you know, you marry a lot of young couples, you know. And nowadays, a lot of young couples coming into marriage are coming into it with significant school debt. And so let's say, for example, that here's a young man, and he is uh, very wealthy. You know, he's just loaded, multi, tens of millions of dollars. This young man is just, you know, very wealthy. And he has grown to love the sweet young lady, and they want to get married. And she comes with $50,000 of school debt into the relationship. What happens to her school debt when she marries this extremely wealthy young man. 50 grand is nothing. It just simply gets absorbed in his wealth. The same thing happens for your debt and mine when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. I bring this huge debt in. My sin. It's my debt. Jesus didn't do it. I did it. My debt. I dug myself in that hole. I did it. But when I come into this relationship with Jesus, the immensity of Jesus' grace and his mercy and his supply is such that it absorbs my debt, making it null and void. He cancels it. Paul describes it as Jesus nailed it to the cross. It literally is done, it's paid for, over, not an issue any longer. Let me go back and review. Jesus brings you in. Why? Because he has the authority to invite you in. Second, Jesus takes your sin problem and he cuts it away so it's not even a part of the issue anymore. Third, Jesus takes your debt and he cancels it, so now you're debt-free. The fourth thing Jesus does is found in verse 15 there, and uh, I just want to read it one more time because it's such a good verse. 
And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's the demonic realm and Satan himself, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The last thing that Jesus does in order to bring you in so that you can enjoy being in is Jesus takes your enemy and he completely demoralizes him. He shames Satan. That's what that means. He made a public spectacle of him. Look, at in the first century, whenever a conquering general would win a battle, one of the things that they would do is the conquering general would ride in the front on the big white horse, the stallion, and his, his uh, winning army, the victorious army, would be behind him, all of his generals and his soldiers and so forth. And behind them, at the very end, would be the defeated enemy, the defeated army. And they would strip them naked and they would force them to walk through the streets as the people in the city would taunt and spit and jeer and put them down. And the whole thing was designed to completely demoralize this enemy that had lost the battle. And he says that's exactly what Jesus did to Satan. Exactly. He made a public spectacle of him. He stripped them naked. He left them bare. He shamed him. He demoralized them so that we can see Satan for the sham that he is. Jesus goes, that's what I've done for your enemy. That's what I've done to your enemy for you. So friends, what is holding you back? Can I ask you that question? What is holding you back? Jesus cut away your sin problem. Jesus canceled your debt. Jesus shamed your enemy. What could possibly hold you back? Wow. Nothing. Nothing. No one. Jesus has raised the rope and he's invited you in. And now you stand at the cusp of the kingdom of God, which he's handed to you. And he says, there you go. Have at it. It's all yours fly, be free. You can explore it. You're in. You're in. You know? You're in the family photos. You're in the family traditions. You're in the, you're in the family dinners. You're in the family inheritance. You're in. So, go ahead. Why live like an outsider when you have been made the ultimate insider there's no good reason to live like an outsider when you've been made an insider that's what it means to be a christian to be a christian is not just showing up at church that's we we, we just have messed it up so badly we've uh, we've taken all of the strength and the power out of what it means to be a christian it's not that it's not a political party it's not you know, man, it means that I'm in. It means that I carry an authority with me. It means I have permission to go anywhere that I want to go in the kingdom because it's my kingdom. It's my home. You know, we sing that. He's my home. He's my home. Do I mean it? Do you mean it? Why are you still treating Jesus like you're a visitor? Come on. He's your home. Jesus has done everything he can do 
to bring you in and to make you at home. He's, he's, left the, he's given you the keys and he's left the whole place open. It's yours. Take it. Take it. No need to live like an outsider when you're the ultimate insider. When Jesus did everything he could do to see to it that you'd be in. Father, I want to thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done in order to bring me in. I'm glad, Jesus, for that privilege. It's an honor to be in. I thank you for cutting out my sin problem. Thank you. I thank you, Lord, for canceling my debt. Oh, that's such a relief. Thank you. I thank you, Jesus, for for making Satan of naught in my life, just shaming him. Thank you, Lord. Hmm. Yes, thank you. Hmm. Thank you, Jesus, for the joy of being in and for all that you did to make it happen. And now, Lord, I commit myself to, like Paul said, becoming strengthened in the faith, to growing and learning what it is to be in, that I might enjoy everything you died to give me, Jesus. Lord, I pray today for those of us here who have been feeling like they're out on the other side of the rope. Jesus, I pray that before they leave here today, they would step onto it and into your warm embrace. Jesus sing.